Every digital system has vulnerabilities. Cars can be hacked, locked computers can be exploited, and credit cards can be spoofed. Security researchers make a career out of finding these types of vulnerabilities. Sammy Kamkar's approach to security research is not just about dissection, it's also about creativity. For many of the technologies that Sammy hacks on, he open sources code that summarily describes the vulnerability he has been working on. For example, in his project Poison Tap, Sammy open sourced code that you can run on a $5 Raspberry Pi and plug into a locked computer to exploit it. Our conversation covered the art of deconstructing technologies for vulnerabilities and Sammy's goals as a security researcher. We also touched on some of the broader issues of modern security. This was a fascinating episode, and I enjoyed it a lot because of Sammy's ideas of creating an artifact around the exploits that he finds to engage his creative instincts as well as his security hacker instincts. Also, Software Engineering Daily is having its first meetup on January 11th at Galvanize in San Francisco. And if you're in the Bay Area, you should come check it out. There's more information on meetup.com if you can find the Software Engineering Daily group, or you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com and click on the Meetup tab. I hope to see you there. Sammy Kamkar is a security researcher who has worked on a variety of open source projects. Sammy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Your projects usually expose a vulnerability or some kind of hidden feature of hardware or software, and it's often through an insight that other people who have worked on the system did not have, or you're just looking at it from a different angle. What drives your curiosity to inspect systems for vulnerabilities rather than to create brand new software products? Um, well, I, I would uh, I, I would just argue that a little bit in that uh, pretty much everything I do, you know, whenever whenever I release a project, it's actually really important to me to also create something. Um, definitely, it most of it does focus on breaking things um, and exploiting things, but uh, I really love creating things too. So uh, pretty much every project I do is not necessarily just exploiting a vulnerability, but rather creating either a piece of software or hardware combination that does that interesting exploit. Um, and I guess, I mean, to answer to answer your question, you know, why is it maybe mostly focused on that? I think uh, it's just ever since I was a kid, being able to uh, exploit something has been really interesting. I mean, I think I did, you know, I did basic puzzles as a kid and that was always fun. And the idea of, you know, really just hacking something, you know, it, it always feels like you're solving a puzzle that wasn't meant to be solved. I mean, if it feels good to solve a puzzle, um, it also feels good to create stuff. But but when you solve something that wasn't ever supposed to like happen um, or it's not supposed to be possible, I think that's that's even more exciting for me. Well, it's a good point that your projects tend to have an artifact that comes out of the end of it, whether it's a piece of software or some kind of strange hardware device that's used to expose the vulnerability or the the hack or whatever it is. Your your projects are quite creative, and I'm not sure if many people listening are security researchers, but I know that there are a lot of people who are listening that work on side projects. Can you describe your ideation process for coming up with inventions and projects? Um, sure. Uh, you know, this is obviously software radio, so maybe, maybe we can go over some of the software stuff. Um, I, I guess initially, 
Um, I guess a lot of it's just curiosity and exploration. Um, there's always so many cool new technologies that you know other people are creating. So a lot of a lot of it is me just trying to learn these new basic elements um, or these new tools or you know if a new let's say HTML5 comes out right there's a suite of new uh, features that that can be used and of course new stuff is coming out in browsers these days all the time um, so I'm kind of always interested in yeah like like what those things are and I guess just as I dig in a new technology that I'm interested in um, the issues sort of pop up I'm not necessarily looking for an issue uh, I, I think Often it's just kind of I'm just exploring how something works, and and then I might discover some some problem, and I think oh that that's really interesting. Maybe I can, you know, maybe I can do something around that. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a you know several years ago I was looking at uh, HTML5 had started coming out in browsers, and this is uh, I remember there was a geolocation API. I was like, oh, that's very cool. And I tried it out. I took some JavaScript code. It was only implemented in Firefox at the time. And I used some JavaScript from Firefox and implemented the the API. And I went to the site, uh, my own site that executed it. And it said, did I want to allow this website to essentially see my location? I was like, okay, allow. And it got my physical location down to the physical address, like very, very accurately. And I was, I was extremely impressed because, hey, it's like five years ago, um, and you know, most you know, Firefox was the only browser that had this functionality, and I had no idea how it worked because we don't have GPS in laptops, right? We only have GPS in mobile phones, for example. Um, so after inspecting it further, I learned that the way the API works is that it actually sends all the MAC addresses of your of all the routers around you up to Google, and then Google will return coordinates back to you. Wow. So Google, yeah, Google has this database. Um, and I was, I thought that's kind of interesting. So basically, Google knows where all these routers are, any wireless router is, uh, even if it's encrypted, because the MAC address remains unencrypted. So I thought, in, typically, it, it asks you, you know, the browser will ask you whether you want to share that information with the website or not. But most routers will actually expose the MAC address publicly through the, its web interface. So all you have to do is find a very, like, a, a simple cross-site scripting vulnerability, in, which you can find in most modern routers, and then grab the router at, uh, MAC address, and then send it to Google yourself. Uh, so if you, let's say, visit my own page, I can grab your router's MAC address, send it to Google, and then get your exact coordinate uh, without any authorization from you. So there's like incredible sort of, sort of cool things. And that was sort of, sort of spurred off of just being interested in how uh, geolocation API worked. Hmm. Do you collaborate much with other researchers or do you just work alone and you feel like you have more leverage working alone um you know i, I definitely love collaborating with other people uh it, sometimes it's hard uh, lately it's been i've been working on a lot of hardware stuff um but i definitely have a, a ton you know i have some some good friends that i've known for many many years in sort of the security community and software community um that i sometimes work on projects with uh often often the way it works is a, there will be other people who might actually build a really cool tool. Um, and then I might use that tool for some projects and then I'll build some projects on top of that tool or using it. And then I'll release some stuff and then I'll contribute back to their project. Then they'll contribute to my project. So there's a lot of sort of sharing and, uh, uh, melding going on, even if it wasn't, let's say a direct collaboration on a specific project. We did a show about car security a while ago, and you've done some research into this. I wanted to ask you about it. My understanding is that the vulnerabilities in cars often come from the entertainment center, which often has some leaky abstractions that can become dangerous. 
what what worries you about car security? What got you interested in car security? Uh, you know, I think so. Charlie Miller and Chris Valsic they, they pulled off the you know most amazing uh, car hack ever, and that was maybe about one or two years ago when they this was the wired thing, correct? Right? Yeah, they hacked the Jeep, uh, an unmodified Jeep Cherokee over the internet. Uh, and we're able to essentially control brakes, transmission, the dash, all sorts of things. Um, absolutely incredible. And, and yeah, as you said, a lot of it comes from sort of the infotainment system. And that's because it's running a lot of, you know, often those systems are running Windows or Linux, right? They're, they're running full operating systems. They're running all sorts of, you know, they have to support all types of different codecs and, you know, video codecs and music codecs. Um though those by themselves are often full of vulnerabilities. Uh, we usually see some pretty good ones there. Um, you know, you just have a ton of software there. So there's just a lot of, you know, the attack surface is, is really wide. Additionally, it has a lot of uh, ways to communicate with the world, right? You have Bluetooth to communicate with your uh, phone. You have the radio, which radio has, you know, their radio protocols. Uh, other than FM and AM, you also have like RDS, which actually reads data from um, a, a radio transmission. Um, there is digital data. Uh, you have, you know, the CD, the CD ROMs will actually will offer the CD players will often be able to read firmware from CDs. Um, you know, you have the rolling code system from the key fobs, which are wireless. So there's, there's just a lot of sort of communication points. Uh, nowadays, most cars also have GSM, right? They have some sort of like OnStar capability or other mobile capability that allows them to be connected to the Internet. Mm-hmm. And you've also done some research into drones recently. How does the security model for cars compare to drones? And do you think that the ideal security model for a car looks similar to the ideal security model for a drone? Uh, that's a good question. I, I haven't thought about that. Uh, you know, drones and cars are not very similar. Um, they, I have seen some drones where they will use the CAN bus protocol, which is also used in cars. Um but other than that, I mean, most drones don't have very much security. Uh, I guess you could say that for, for many areas of vehicles as well, although vehicles are improving all the time, so that's good. Um, I don't know. I, I guess they're just they're kind of different beasts. All, so but, Sure, like very different applications, I guess. Yeah, but, but they definitely, you know, they're still, they're still both running OSs. Um, you still probably have Linux on both of them. Uh, so I, I think... The protocols and, and often the communication. So, you know, typically you're controlling drone via some RF communication protocol. Sometimes there are multiple RF communication protocols. Um, often there's like some proprietary control for controlling the drone. There's uh, an additional link for telemetry, um, and you might be able to send sort of autonomous commands uh, or go to you know these GPS positions. Um, they, you know, drones will use GPS to d- detect where they are. So that, you know, unfortunately can be easily spoofed. There's no, there's no security authentication or encryption with GPS. Um, so that's, that can be spoofed with sort of open source software and hardware um, pretty trivially. Uh, and then cars, yeah, they, they, they sort of, you know, they don't have that RF link for control. That's all sort of manually controlled until you get into features like Park Assist. And, um, you know, park means your comp- the computer, the ECU in the car can actually control the steering wheel and the brakes. Um, and it's that same ECU that's that's connected to the infotainment system, which is also connected to a mobile phone, which is connected to the Internet. And that's how you can essentially jump from system to system until you can control, you know, the wheel. Yeah. 
So getting to some of the projects you've done more recently, there's a project called MagSpoof that you did to spoof credit cards or magnetic stripes. And credit cards, they seem quite vulnerable, and we see this in MagSpoof as well as the, this epidemic of skimming machines where you see somebody put a big credit card machine on top of a normal ATM or credit card machine and and just skim uh, the, the credit card information off of that. What insights into the credit card security industry did the did the MagSpoof project give you? Yeah, that, that was a fun one. Um, you know, I've never messed with magnetic stripes before, so I really didn't understand them or, or know what they did. Um, and I wasn't even sure if they really were magnetic. I just, you know, I just, I just always called them mag stripes. Um, and, you know, here in the U.S., I don't know why we've only recently started to move to chip. And honestly, I think it's probably because of the target breach. Um, you know, I believe Europe and, you know, many other countries have been using chip and pin for the longest time. And only recently have they introduced chip here. And they didn't even introduce pin, which is kind of, uh, just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but... I guess the things I learned from, you know, developing MagSpoof was, you know, first I want to see, can I, I want to understand how mag, mag stripes worked. And I learned, yes, they absolutely are mag, magnetic. So you're essentially having binary data on that mag, mag stripe. And I thought, okay, well, if it's actually magnetic, couldn't I use an electromagnetic field to emulate a credit card? So even on a typical mag stripe reader, something that doesn't necessarily support NFC or RFID, um, so, you know, I sort of wound a coil and then hooked it up to a motor driver and uh, an AT tiny uh, mic- microcontroller. And I was able to essentially emulate my credit card just by turning that motor controller and, and power, uh, you know, p- pumping current through the coil. Um, and I could go up to any MagStripe re- reader and per- perform a purchase by emulating my credit card. So then I was curious about what those what the data was. And there was things like your PAN, which is your credit card number, the expiration. There's a different type of CVV. It's not the one written on your card. It's a, a different a different CVV that's um, also in the MagStripe. And there was some other, other information like uh, something called a service code. And what was really interesting about the service code is the service code tells things like whether you're allowed to pull cash out of an ATM, whether the card's allowed to work internationally, and whether the card has chip or not, and chip and pin or not. And I have a couple of card, credit cards, and I was looking at my chip card, um, and that was that said, the service code said it has chip. So I went to Target, and then I swiped my uh, card that had chip in it, just a regular credit card. And it said it, it wouldn't allow the swipe. It said you have to insert the chip because it knows there's a chip. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So then I inserted the chip, and everything worked. I was like, I wonder if I could just, what happens if I flip that bit? So I took my Mac spoof, and then I took the entire, you know, Amex credit card and information off the Max stripe, except I flipped that I flipped that one bit. And of course I fixed parity so everything, you know, error correction would work. And I went back to Target and then I used my MagSpoof device to send that credit card and lo and behold, it worked. It didn't require the chip. So there was virtually no security in that um, in that service code. It was just uh, I mean you're basically saying, oh, yeah, are you legit? And you just say, yeah, yeah I'm totally legit. <laughs> now we've talked through some of your projects. Um, I want to zoom out a little bit, and I'm not sure how much perspective you'll have on this, but there was this Mirai botnet a few months ago that took down Netflix and Twitter and these other sites, and this to me feels like 
a big deal. It feels like uh, a big deal, but it also feels like a precursor to like, to more chaos more than anything. I, I think there's there's been some talk like this. You know, if, if you look at the volume of bots on the on the botnet versus uh, how much damage was actually done, there could have been a lot more damage. Um, have you looked at this in detail? Do you have any perspective on how bad this type of attack could get? Oh yeah, it can get. Uh, it's it's going to get awful. I think you're. I think you're right. Um, if you looked at Mirai, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but all it did was it used default credentials for IoT devices. You know, mostly IP cameras. That's all it did. It literally scans the internet, looks for devices that have SSH running, and attempts and brute forces with default credentials across several you know manufacturers of. IoT devices and IP cameras. And if it works, if it logs in, then it installs itself and then continues. That's that's all it did. I mean, there was, and that's going to continue to happen as we continue to, you know, as more and more IoT devices get released and many of them have SSH enabled by default and have default credentials. Um, I mean, if we really just, it, literally, if we just got rid of default credentials, this wouldn't be a problem. Um, so it's, it's definitely going to continue. The, it wasn't sort of a, you know, it wasn't... It, crazy sophisticated you know thing like stuxnet um with zero day after zero day after zero day in order for it to traverse you know so many computers and flash drives and everything else um so someone who wants to can make it even better they can add more devices to the source code the source code was released um granted it's not too difficult to write a you know ssh brute forcing uh, brute forcing tool you just need to go and sort of find what are the most common devices out there running ssh and then start scanning the attack vector or the tech surface, I guess, for Mirai was a DNS provider. They decided to go after a DNS, Dyn DNS. Right. Are there other major weak points of internet infrastructure that would be have this cascading failure effect that we saw with Dyn? Um, I mean, I think, uh, I think, I think you know, definitely DNS. Um, you know, whether it's a major DNS provider or whether it's root DNS servers, uh, although you need to hit a lot of them. Um, and then I think the next. You know the the next place would be CDNs, uh, so just content delivery networks that are hosting a ton of the content for a lot of these major you know major websites, um, be it whether it's Netflix or Twitter or whomever. So we're talking about AWS or Cloudflare or whatever uh, yeah. CDN. Yeah, exactly. You, so it sounds like you are not sure whether these types of services are adequately resourced to provide uh enough scale up in this type of event do you think they they might be or um that's a good question i mean i guess it it just depends on the type of attack um especially if you can you know if if you can get something um you know if you have legitimate machines that are making legitimate requests uh you know it makes it and you can randomize those requests enough then it also makes it difficult to stop because you don't know where to route, you don't know what's legitimate and what's not. Where you know if if all the traffic looks the same and you know that's part of the DDoS, then you can at least put in filters and rules that would help stop some of that traffic um, before it hits you know whatever edge servers. Um, yeah. So so I would say I'm sure many I'm sure many of them are prepared and many of them are not. And the and the question is how big is it going to get? Right. That that's I think another concern. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, Bruce Schneier was in front of Congress talking about this and advocating for government intervention because the market can't solve this. I think he was talking more about the default credentials stuff, but 
you know, uh, the, the default credentials is just like the low-hanging fruit. Um, do you agree that this is something that the like free market forces can't really correct for? <laughs> like I just look at it and, and I say it, it's not it's not a difficult problem to solve. It's don't use default credentials, and you know you can't. Here's the thing: you can't assume that a user is users are going to put things on on the on the internet, whether they're told to or not to. They're going to do it because it's convenient. Like if you have an IP camera, it's convenient to be able to go home and or go to your office and then see the, what's going on on the IP camera at home. Um, and if you're not using one that's cloud-based or that's handling, you know, if you don't know anything about networking or you don't care, you're probably just going to put it on your DMZ or port forward or something. And now it's on the internet. And now you haven't, if that has some default credentials or a default SSH key um, or an insecure, you know, insecure web server or whatever, then it's going to be exposed to, it's going to be exposed to attackers. And I think manufacturers just have to assume that. Like they just have to, you can't just put in a manual don't put this on public IP. You just have to assume they're going to. So, really, don't do default credentials. That's like the, the, it's it's kind of the very basic next step to solve a problem that we've known about for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Well, it was interesting. I was, I was, I think I was listening to Security Now, um, at, and they were reporting on this, and they were talking about the response from this. I think it's a, a very one very specific Chinese company that makes all of these cameras that have these default login credentials and their response was kind of deny and put their head in the sand and um like i wonder if it was because that like getting your camera hacked by mirai doesn't actually render your camera useless it just turns your camera into a a dos bot um but but I mean I th- I mean I think yeah. you're right. Like I mean, I mean to the user, yeah. I think I mean I think you're right. To the user, they probably won't notice anything except some slow internet. Um, but it, you know the user also doesn't necessarily know whether they're uh, exfiltrating that actual video feed, right? Who where's that video feed of? And, and not only that, you now have you now have access to the internal LAN. So if I can SSH into a machine, and I say so what if it's an IP camera on your on your network? Um, because it was DMZ'd, well, that means I can now jump off from there and I can ARP spoof other machines on your network. I can DNS spoof everything. That means I can start modifying, intercepting, sniffing your traffic. Um, so from there, th- that could be really dangerous. And the thing is, we're not going to hear about those sorts of things, right? You usually hear about that when it becomes, okay, this database, this database from this comp- big company was leaked. And no one really knows how that happened, but it was because someone was able to get into a single machine on that network. And then once you're in sort of inside of a network, it's very easy to escalate privilege. My sense is that in the past, uh, your work and your intentions have been misunderstood by the government. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on the technical attitude of the United States government these days. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's improving a lot. Um, the, the cool thing is I actually do see, you know, government agencies sort of reaching out um, and going more towards security researchers who might not have the formal education or the formal um, <laughs> hair, haircut or clothes or, uh, you know, look that uh, that they're sort of used to. And, you know, the way if you've ever gone to maybe a hacker conference or something like DEF CON, you just have such an abundance of uh, different types of people and you know, sort of from different areas, uh, different areas of lives. Um, 
so I, I think they've been really closed off before to, to those sorts of hackers and security researchers. Um, and more and more are embracing them because I think you'll find a lot of uh, incredible talent out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I know I've done some research into the United States Digital Service, which is very different from intelligence agencies or anything, but it's a very diverse crowd of people, and uh, I think they let them wear T-shirts and stuff. So, <laughs> nice. uh, so you get a variety of um, types of people. Uh, so, but do you have any perspective on how secure our voting systems are? Because this has like been uh, quite a relevant security discussion recently. Yeah, the, that's a that's a good question. I personally don't know um, how secure they are. Uh, I would probably um, defer to uh, was it Alex Halderman who has done just done some really cool demonstrations of. Uh, he demonstrated hacking an e-voting machine several years ago, and I think he also wrote about the topic recently. Uh, okay, I'll but, but check him out. He's sort of, I, I think he would be sort of the number one expert in that area. Okay, sure. So your work has exposed some surreptitious data collection by Apple and Google and Hulu and these other big companies. This was, I think, your, your work in um, looking at mobile devices mainly. What's your personal stance on these massive volumes of tracking data? Were you just trying to, like, did, did you not have any personal stance and you were just trying to expose it and publicize it? Or do you have a stance on the on the tracking data assemblage? Um, you know, I, I, I think tracking, I, I think tracking, taking information is, is okay. Um, I'm actually pretty content with people doing that. Uh, I think there's some really cool uses for it. Just like my, you know, I get Google Maps live traffic view because of all the crowdsourced information from all the phones um, that are, you know, currently traveling on that road that I'm driving on uh, or want to drive on. So I'm typically okay with it. Um, what I'm not, what I'm not okay with is uh, the lack of transparency or outright deceit. Um, I think the primary thing that I exposed, although I demonstrated how all of our mobile phones are sort of. Are, iPhone, Android, and Microsoft Windows phones were all essentially tracking GPS and Wi-Fi location and correlating that with signal strength and being able to do crazy triangulation. And then I could tap into all of those databases and sort of use it against people if I wanted. Um, I say the big issue was, A, users weren't ever sort of told that. And more importantly, if a user would go into their, at least specifically on their iPhone or Windows phone, and they would turn off location services or GPS the phone would continue to track location information about them. So essentially, it would be disabled for all of their apps, like their Maps or you know Yelp or food ordering app. But the actual companies continued to collect that information. When at that point you're sort of you're actually lying to the consumer. Um, you know I think if you disable that feature, then it should be disabled and it should not be used at all. Uh, but other than that, I think if you enable it and you want, you know, with, I think you're you're providing some data and you get some really cool uses back. I think that's totally fine. Tangential to that, um, I've been trying to do some shows recently about uh, security and the relationship between privacy and, um, you know, w- related to WikiLeaks. And so Julian Assange came out with this book called When Google Met WikiLeaks uh, fairly recently. And he and in it, he suggests that Google has become 
tightly coupled with the U.S. government in terms of how much in- intelligence it provides. He describes Eric Schmidt as somebody who just moves fluidly between Google and the U.S. government. Uh, you know, I don't know. We all have our opinions about Julian Assange, but um, does this? I mean, how much truth is there to this? Does this worry you? Like how cozy the government has gotten with with large corporations? Um, you know, this is something that I, I really, I just don't know what to think about it because I, I just don't know, right? I, I don't know what it's like to be in one of those big companies, uh, especially, you know, at the top and dealing with those sorts of orders. Um, I, I don't know what it's like to be in the government. You know, I don't really, you know, I, I don't really know what, uh, I, I think I'll, I'll say this, I'll say I used to want a lot more, say privacy, um, you know, personal privacy. And, you know, I wanted to sort of no one to ever know what's happening with my stuff and my data. And I guess I still do. I still don't want anyone to. Um, although at some point in my life, I kind of changed and said, well, I'm not, you know, if I trust certain people, then I'm okay with that. Um, but it's, it's also a slippery slope. And I, I guess I just don't know, like, what has, let's say, the U.S. government been able to, you know, what have they been able to do with their previous collect, you know, PRISM and other um, sort of, uh, tracking programs like what were they able to do and not what were they capable of doing but what have they done and I don't they're never going to share that because they'll essentially reveal um, you know have, have they stopped terrorists have they stopped attacks I assume they've stopped some things right uh, uh, they're not doing it for nothing um, so I think it's like they have their heart in the right place and they also were probably doing active things I just don't know and I don't really have that information so I I try to think you know I think about it a lot but uh, I don't think I've I've thought broadly enough about it to really have a strong opinion anymore. When when I actually used to have a stronger opinion, and now I'm I do think people should uh, I, I do love sharing information. I, I think anyone should be able to access sort of information out there. So I definitely am always sharing sort of if people care and they want to encrypt their data. Um, I'm you know I always share how and uh, you know ways to sort of keep yourself keep yourself safe online offline uh, keep your data safe. Um, what to trust, what not to trust, and yeah, I mean, I I I, uh, I respect that response, um, the measured, tempered response of not really knowing. Um, I think there has been an unfortunate uh, narrative that when we have this massive data collection and this quote unquote surveillance, we get something that asymptotes towards 1984. And I think some people still feel that way very strongly, still believe it very strongly, even when there is a lot of evidence. The contrary that these devices and these all these technologies give us incredible freedom, incredible creativity. Um, of course, there are the downside risks of 1984-type chilling effects or whatever kind of arguments you want to make. But um, I think it's very uncharted territory, and you know you can't even look to like a futurist novel um, by George Orwell to uh, for guidance. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I do feel it's a double-edged sword, um, and I just don't know which which edge I like more. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, I, I know which edge I personally like more, uh, but then I think, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I trust myself. I don't know if I trust everyone else, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's t- it's a tough question. I, I wish I, I wish I had a better understanding or idea myself. Most of the people who come on this show work for some kind of company. You are an independent researcher. Why did you choose that route as a career rather than 
joining a larger company or starting a larger company where you could do more delegation, perhaps some larger projects. What, give me a sense of that. Sure. Uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, I started a voice over IP uh, company uh, many years ago, I think when I was 17 or so, and I did that for um, some years. And at some point, um, you know, the company grew and it was awesome, like an amazing experience. And then at some point, I just wanted to sort of like, I wanted to leave, I wanted to travel, I wanted to do other things. Um, and it took me a while to be able to sort of move my responsibilities, or I guess I just didn't delegate properly from the beginning. Um, to the point that I could leave and go and do things while the company sort of continued to, uh, you know, support customers and, and build stuff. Um, and then after that, I think after, through traveling, I was just started researching different areas and uh, I've just really liked the ability to kind of any day, any time, just kind of look at whatever I wanted, whatever I was kind of interested in because I definitely get into very, uh, I'll get into like, a week where I'm just super interested and super focused on something. And if there was something else in my way, that that would suck. <laughs> so I guess uh, the lifestyle just became really, um, really attractive. What kinds of security precautions do you take personally? Uh, I don't think I'm as paranoid as I should be. Uh, I would say I do encrypt, you know, I do encrypt as much, you know, most things. Um, I encrypt my hard drive. I, uh, let's see. You know, I sort of sort of ensure I'm you know always using SSL uh, when visiting websites or well, TLS. Um, I yeah, I don't know. Those are the main things. I guess I have various. I have some apps running. Like I'm on on macOS, and I have something called Block Block, which tells me if something is trying to install uh, something onto into startup. Um, little snitch to tell me if an application is trying to make an outbound request to a port that it's not used to. Uh, I jailbreak my devices, my devices, and play around. You know, do do a lot on there. And um, it sounds like the those precautions don't have any. They don't infringe on your ways of living life that and make it any different than somebody who does not have an intimate view of computer security. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you want to have some some knowledge of technology or you know your computer when you're using some of these tools um some of them you don't have to right if you use if you use file vault or bitlocker uh to or i'm sorry not, not file vault uh, it's veracrypt now um or, or i'm sorry yeah you can use file vault on on mac os um if you're using that to encrypt your hard drive you don't need to know anything except your password you don't need to understand how file vault works um so i think that's kind of cool some of the things that you know you kind of do want to understand what it's doing like do you want to allow this, you know, weird kernel extension that you've never heard of, you know, db.kx to install onto startup? Well, maybe that's your Dropbox, you know, kernel extension. Maybe I can realize that, but someone else might not. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if people are interested, they should definitely explore and just try some of these things out and they can always remove them later, of course. You mentioned Stuxnet earlier. Uh, have you looked at Stuxnet in depth? Uh, not, No, not crazy in depth. Um, ah, okay. Have you? Uh, I saw a, a movie on it that was good. Oh, cool! Um, it was called I think Zero Days. Zero Days, okay. Yeah, and and it, like I mean, like you said, you know, Stuxnet took this crazy orchestration of three zero day attacks to uh, <laughs> to have it work. Um, yeah, it's quite an amazing project. I didn't totally agree. So the, the film kind of takes this narrative that Stuxnet kicked off this new level of cyber warfare. Um, because it sowed the seeds of this type of cyber attack that you could have, but I didn't totally buy it because it 
seemed like there's a lot of expense that you have to put into making a worm that's that sophisticated. It's not like once you write it, it's like write once, run on any type of attack if you want to. Um, I, I do. I would feel that you know nation states who work on this sort of stuff are probably getting close to that if not already because uh, if you look at a lot of the viruses that come out so with stuxnet they found that there were a lot of similarities to another virus called flame Um, yeah right so they found what a lot of similar binary binary functions that were probably the same thing so that that means that it's likely at least if i were building something like this i would make a modular um right i'd have various various modules and they would all sort of perform various functions. And when one was, you know, one zero day was caught, well, you just create a new a new package with the, the next zero day that you have. And of course, many nation states have, have employees who are just doing that. They're just looking for, um, they're just combing source code and just fuzzing binaries to find new exploits. That's all they do. So who knows how many they actually have. Does this kind of stuff spook you out at all like do you have a feeling like we're inching closer to some sort of global cyber war or other kind of inevitable catastrophe uh i'm definitely i mean while it could cause a catastrophe i'm totally fascinated by it i I think it's like exciting um you know it's like you know it might be a car crash that you can't look away from or or, uh (laughs) it's like a a fire right um it might not be great but I, i love looking at it i think it's really interesting um, so, um, I'm definitely, I'm fascinated with the, the technical part and, um, yes, yeah, to, to see something like Stuxnet, that, that is incredible. How do you hold those two ideas in your head at once? The idea that this could cause some kind of catastrophe and the idea that it's very fascinating. I guess it's like, uh, I, I don't know who said it, but you know, when it comes to say freedom of speech, you know, I, I, maybe you, you can tell me who said it, but it's like something like, I don't support <laughs> I don't support what you say, but I, you know, uphold your right to say it. Um, it's kind of like that freedom of information. I, I feel like it's information that will get us in a ton of trouble by like actually sharing information, sharing schematics. Like I don't necessarily, you know, want uh, guns in my house, but I want. I think people should be able to share uh, 3D models of guns. Um, I don't think that should be illegal. Uh, whether owning it, then I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I haven't thought about it. But I want the information to be available. I also believe that information is going to be, you know, ultimately, our, I think information will ultimately be our downfall um, in one way or another. But I don't think we should restrict information because of that. Um, can, you, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean information will be our downfall? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's... You have scientists who can create an atomic bomb, right? That's just information and scientists working towards uh, and working together and sharing information that you know gets you to that level. Um, if you forbid people from learning science, then you won't ever have an atomic bomb. Um, does that mean you should stop people from learning science uh, or studying science or researching? I don't think so. But do you take any precautions? Like the Murai, the Murai botnet, like really spooked me out, and I was like, I don't know, maybe I should keep some cash under the mattress or start putting money in Bitcoin and gold. And uh, I mean, as somebody who's who's kept a close eye on the security world for such a long time, do you do you um, do you take any like uh, tail risk um, <laughs> uh, precautions? 
you know, I guess, sure, keep, I do think you should keep some money, you know, under your mattress. Um, and, but the good thing is if, you know, the internet is destroyed or something terrible happens, uh, we're all in it together. So we're, we're, we're all going to be on the same level, right? It's not like, it's not going to be like a bunch of people have Bitcoin and they are able to do everything and no one else is, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think Bitcoin and Ethereum are interesting. So, you know, I would also probably say, yeah, you, you might want to get that, some of that too. Um, but I'm not, you know, we all sort of have the same dependencies, right? We depend on the same thing. We, you know, especially if you work in technology, um, if whatever happens, it sort of will happen to all of us. So I think as long as, as long as we're all together, I think that that's okay. <laughs> I'm not too worried then. So of all the systems that I've, uh, you know, read about you uh, attacking. I, was, I mean, I guess uh, I was going to ask you, like, are there any vulnerabilities of social networks that you'd like to inspect? But I just remembered that the very first thing that you ever attacked was MySpace. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I stopped. Yeah, I stopped after that. You stopped with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I got raided by the Secret Service. I couldn't touch a computer for three years. Um, and then I was like, all right, let's not look at social networks hypothetically is there is there anything you would you would do if you were if you were uh, poking at facebook um well they, they do have a they do have a, a vulnerability they do have a bug bounty program so that's, that's true that's, yeah. really, that's really cool that they do that um what would i look at uh i guess i would kind of if, what fascinates you about facebook i mean it's i think it's a really cool tool um i think it does a ton for a lot of people and I guess those are you know the two different questions. If I were looking for vulnerabilities, then I'd be looking at sort of their latest fe- their latest features. Um, that's probably the f- first thing I'd be looking at um, because I think you're going to have less people looking there and more like yeah more likely to find a vulnerability in a new system than an old one. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. Facebook, I like Facebook. I use their events system a lot. So I mean, they have a ton of systems now, right? They have a ton of stuff going on. So I I don't I don't know the I don't know a t- tenth of it or percent of it. So um, there was a quote. Bruce Schneier was on the show a while ago, and one quote that he said that stood out to me was, uh, "We are finding more and more that security is less about what you did think of and more about what you didn't think of. What are the areas of security that you think are underexplored or that we're not thinking about as much?" Uh, I think it's phys- I think it's like physics. I think it's physics-based attacks. So I'm talking side channel attacks. I'm talking emanations that leak from your devices. Um, you know, for example, I think it was the University of Tel Aviv. They demonstrated a couple of really cool attacks where uh, in one attack, they were able to take an Android device, an Android phone, set it next to a computer, uh, next to a laptop. On the laptop, they typed an email and then encrypted it via P- uh, PGP. The Based off the, the PGP encryption operations, um, the capacitors and resistors around the processor, around the CPU and the laptop, produced ultrasound that humans can't hear, but the microphone of an Android device could, or really of any phone, could listen to. And it recorded that, and they are able to take that data and then convert those unique sounds into operations. Because essentially, while you're encrypting in software, depending on your key, depending on each bit of your key, you're going to perform a different operation. Um, or it will take a different amount of time. So based off that, they were able to extract the PGP key used to encrypt that email, um, literally from literally from a, a device sitting you know on the desk, which 
it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unreasonable for someone to set their phone on somebody else's desk while they're you know meeting or leave it there. Um, so that that would be one example. Um, you know, I think RF emanations are, are really interesting. So uh, basically, radio frequency and electromagnetism. Um, ever since the Tempest attack, when CRT monitors gave off radio emanations that could be listened, essentially listened to from another room and converted back into a screen, into a monitor, um, so you could see what the user was seeing in the other room. What is the monitor. Tempest attack? A Tempest, T-E-M-P-E-S-T. Oh. And it's basically your CRT monitor. Uh, we no longer use CRT, but a CRT monitor would give so so much RF uh, emanations off that you could pick it up with an antenna a, a room away, and then you could convert that data back to a visual, basically to a screen, to what they're seeing on their monitor. Incredible. Was that a? Did that happen as a like? as an actual hack in the real world or did was that just a researcher that discovered uh, that i think it was the nsa but i'd have to double check wow hmm. interesting so when you're talking about these physics based attacks what kinds of ideas is this giving you like what are you are there any specific areas that you're thinking about diving into experiments you're thinking about running um yeah you know i, I am working on one project um that is in the rf area um but i, I won't disclose too much until until i get it working or Hopefully, you know, I get it working. Um, I think it. I think it'll be really cool. Um, but it's basically, yeah, just a, a wireless related attack that's sort of new because it. It's not. Yeah, it's not really. It's not really exploiting any real vulnerability in software or hardware. It's more just exploiting physics in the way that you know we've constructed things and the way things work. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. Now, do you think that is underrated as a concept of like practical application or is that mainly like do you, do you think if, if more people were thinking about this there would be more practical applications or do you think this is more of something where it's just strictly going to be a vulnerability um practical applications i mean i think uh i, I, I guess if you wanted to convey information from point a to point b you'd much rather use bluetooth or uh, or just over wi-fi or something rather than using some sort of complex physics yeah procedure. I, yeah i don't I don't think you'd want to use this unless your goal is to essentially, you know, essentially be doing performing steganography where you're trying to hide the fact that you're transmitting information. So you make it appear like it's leaky, um, you know, electromagnetism uh, from unintentional uh, emanations. So, you know, I guess it depends practical. I think it depends who you ask. I think if you ask the NSA, yeah, they have practical reasons for doing this sort of thing. Um, (laughs) Other nation states, absolutely. Um, I think it'll be practical to understand these things so that we can also protect against it because people will start using these and I I suspect people already are. I suspect nation states already are. It's just that we don't know about it. Um, So I'm definitely interested in, in, well, what are the things that are happening that we don't know about or what are the things that will happen um, that we can discover? Like those those are the things that are super interesting to me. Is this the first project you've been working on since Poison Tap? Um, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say that's probably it. I I probably working on one or two other projects. Um, I'm always kind of working on a couple of projects. Uh, it it's just my, my I usually don't get most of them done. <laughs> so um, only only one out of ten ever makes it to the finish to the finish line. How do you manage those? Because I think that's actually something that that's a that's a trait that's shared by a lot of programmers where they start 
a bazillion projects and then they rarely finish a project or for, in the worst case, never finish a side project. I know a lot of people who have started side projects and they just don't know how to will themselves to finish a side project. Do you have any recommendations for how to think about that? That's tough. I mean, that's something I struggle with myself um, because I, you know, I wish I would see certain projects through and I just uh, often I just lose motivation. I lose interest in a lot of things um, and I'll move on to something else. Uh, I would say, you know, if I were, if I had any piece of advice to try to share, then I, I would say, I would say, A, okay, if you get bored of it, that's okay, but at least move on to something else, um, another project where you're learning. Uh, because I often find that after I'm learning about some, let's say, you know, I'm working on one pro project A and I get bored or I hit a wall and I don't know how to move forward or I'm not really interested in moving forward because it's not fun anymore, um, then I move on to project B. Um, instead of, you know, I, I guess I have the option of turning on Netflix or going to project B. If I, I often turn on Netflix, but some days I'll turn, I'll go to project B and I'll work on that for a while and then I'll learn a bunch of stuff and then I'll probably get bored again. But you, at some point during project B or maybe even project C, I'll have learned something that will give me a really cool idea for project A and then I'll return to project A and then continue working on it and get like a new boost, boost of motivation on that. And, um, I might be able to finish project A at that point. So I'd say that's, that's kind of, that happens to me a lot. I'll be working on something and I'll hit a wall and then I'll just move on to something else and that will spur some ideas in my original project that, I don't know, I might not have had as much fun just sort of hammering through. When you hit a wall, is it more that y you just have like so many tasks in front of you that you don't want to do it or is it, do you hit, like you can't find the right piece of documentation or what is it that, that will make you hit an impediment that you can't move beyond? Um, yeah, I'd say a lot of it is I just don't have, uh, you know, I just don't have maybe all the information or what I'm looking at is it means I'm going to have to, uh, you know, I might have to, I was looking at Bluetooth recently and the, the spec for like Bluetooth 4.2 is just, it's like thousands of pages. Um, and I'm just like, oh no, I don't, I don't want to read this right now. Um, and obviously I don't need to read all of it, but to get the, I guess to I really want to understand it. And to under really want to understand something, I should read the whole thing. Um, plus, not only read it, but then test implementations and see are impl you know, implementations actually implemented the way that the spec talks about it. Um, were pages skipped? Were certain notes skipped? Um, what implementations are lacking what? And, and then potentially, how can I use that to my advantage? Um, so when you do something like that, when you go deep on reading the Bluetooth spec or reading the HTML5 documentation, do you... Are, are you exceptionally good at retaining the information or does it just like occasionally there's something that's like you find hilarious or interesting or crazy and that it ends up being retained because it's so wacky? Uh, usually I'm, I can only retain information if I have something, something to apply it to. Otherwise it just goes, you know, it goes in and out. Um, so if I'm working on a project in that area, then I can usually retain it. Usually I do have to like create something. I have to create, I don't know, a demo app or a piece of hardware. And then I'll retain it really, really well. Um, but until I do that, usually it's uh, yeah. I guess I have to be I have to be pretty interested. Um, often I will try to read about something that I'm not crazy interested in, or like I'm a little bit interested, but I'm not. I really haven't sat down and started working on anything in that area, and, and it might take me a couple times of reading it. Um, I do feel like I kind of learn slower, and I, I do have to read things multiple times to get them. 
Um, and another reason I also hit walls a lot is because a lot of the stuff I'm doing is not necessarily documented. Um, you know, often I'm looking at binary or hardware that is proprietary um, or protocol that's entirely, you know, RF protocol that's proprietary. There is zero documentation. Um, there, you know, maybe there's firmware that I can dump off a chip or, you know, extract from an encrypted uh, download, you know, sort of firmware upgrader. Um, but that's all I have, right? It's, it's just sort of reverse engineering. And that just takes... You know, that takes time. Sometimes you find stuff really quickly and sometimes it's just a hassle. You know, it's just a, a ton of stuff to look through to get a better understanding of if I don't have a good understanding of the un- underlying architecture or what's really happening under the hood. It takes me a lot longer to sort of figure that out. And sometimes that's my that's my wall uh, a lot of the times. So it's, it's you run up against some kind of reverse engineering problem and you just decide this is going to take a lot of mental mental pain to get through yeah yeah sometimes it's just like a lot of sort of mental mapping um and there's probably better ways of doing it uh, and, and i just don't know how um where you know i'm looking at just uh, a ton of functions and i just don't know what any of them do and you know it's on some new architecture and it's just um you know i have to learn new some new assembly instru- instructions and i have to learn i have to sort of because there's so much con there's so much data to go through um uh, at the actual, you know, say machine, looking at machine code, I don't even know where to start. I don't know where to where to begin. And I start, and I begin, and I start documenting things, and I try, you know, you learn pieces and you see patterns. Um, but sometimes it's it's fun for a while, and I'm usually hoping at some point, you know, I don't know how long that is, but you sort of, yeah, I just hit a wall after a while. <laughs> yeah, and do you have any like? high-level strategies for how to do reverse engineering of some kind of proprietary protocol you know like how do you what's the build measure learn thing where you like figure out one small thing and then test it and i don't know how how does that typically work for you uh yeah it totally depends on what it is i mean i'd say the strategy is sort of always the same i really want to understand what are the inputs and what are the outputs and how do i produce a specific output um you know, by controlling some of the inputs or where I might not have access to all of the inputs. I might only have access to one or two inputs. Um, how can I have that traverse to the point that it produces an output that, you know, pleases me? Uh, and I would say, yeah, I would say, I would say learn what you're, as much as you can from public information or testing or black box testing, learn what you think is going on inside. And I'd say the best way, um, you know, the nice thing is, this is software engineering radio, so you know people are writing software. Um, I think one of the best things for me, or that I that I found helps me compared to say other people who do a lot of reverse engineering. Um, oh, some other people I've met will they don't always develop software, and I sort of started with software development. Um, I've always been sort of interested in security and hacking, but from the very I guess since I was a kid, I started developing software, and because of that, I often write terrible software. Um, and because of that, I kind of know how, you know, certain, at least other, uh, some other software developers, they might write similarly terrible software. <laughs> and I can be like, oh, you know, if I were designing this and I were lazy, maybe I would do it this way, uh, which would be a terrible idea. And maybe that would allow for a specific vulnerability. I should test for that. And, uh, and then sometimes I'm like, well, if I weren't being lazy, if I were doing this the right way, or what I believe is the right way, then I'd probably do it this way, and you know this shouldn't this shouldn't affect this. But let's test it anyway, because you you don't know who's writing it and how they're feeling that day, right? Or when they're designing it. So fascinating. I, I hadn't thought about the psychology of trying to get inside the head of 
the either subpar hacker or that wrote the software or the uh, the sophisticated one who was clean with their code and how that might alter your strategy of reverse engineering. Yeah, and often it's not even, you know, it's not even the the developer's, uh, let's say, fault, right? If, if they're writing something bad, often, you know, they have to get a product out. And uh, I, I sort of understand that side of it, too, where sometimes it's just about getting something out. And I think I think a lot of people will We'll probably agree with that if they've worked on products before. Of course. Do, do you have any long-term goals, or are you just kind of jumping from uh, project to project, completing small things, proving things to yourself, and figuring things out? And or do you do you have like a, a macro view for where you want to go? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think I've, when I was younger, or I have, people always sort of said I need to have long-term goals, and I tried setting long-term goals, and uh, they, they like never stuck around. Things always changed a, a ton in my life, and I think I've been really fortunate that I sort of have gotten to experience a lot of things. Um, so I, I don't have any, I guess, real legitimate long-term goals. Um, there are specific things, you know, right now I feel I'm really interested in doing. And right now I'm, I'm really excited about just sort of learning new things and learning new technologies and, um, trying to sort of create more stuff. And, um, another thing I really love doing is sharing with other people and getting other people sort of excited about technology and about, uh, security, uh, security research and, uh, creation and software development and hardware development and 3d modeling and you know the fabricating um so i really try to put some effort into this projects i release just to so that anyone else who wants to maybe jump on or get interested can also um you know s- start from that or work with that and make something better um so you know i do definitely love sharing with other people and, and hopefully get some other people excited in some of these areas very cool. All right. Well, Sammy, I want to thank you for giving me your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed the other interviews I've heard with you, and uh, you have some very cool projects. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 